Today is Palm Sunday. It's our last Sunday in Lent. It leads us into Holy Week this upcoming week and then Easter this upcoming Sunday. And throughout the season of Lent, we have been talking about letting go of the things that are toxic to our faith, letting go of worry and grudges and shame, letting go of our comfort zones, letting go of fear. And we've been talking about, as we let these things go, also letting God work in the free spaces that are left in our souls when we let these toxic things go. Letting God create faith and forgiveness and belonging and hope and love in our hearts where those things used to be. We finish this series about letting go and letting God today by talking about letting go of pride. C.S. Lewis describes pride as the greatest sin. And he describes it that way by saying that pride leads to every other vice. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It's said that pride is the one vice of which no human in the world is free. And yet Palm Sunday is a story of the one man in history who possessed every reason to be prideful and yet embraced humility instead. So as we consider how we are called to let go of our pride and to let God create humility in us, I'm going to ask you to join me in listening for God's truth in our scripture reading for today, which comes from Mark 11, verses 1 through 11. Listen with me for the truth of God. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Just say to them, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said, and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the ground, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in their fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Friends, please join me as we pray. God, we come into worship today so that we can be in the presence of your truth. We know that when we are in the presence of your spirit, that your spirit embraces us wholly and also does not leave us as you found us. And so we pray, God, that we will hear your truth, that we will be transformed by your truth, and that we will be equipped to bring your truth out into the world. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Who is at the center of your favorite parade? Is it your favorite sports team? Or perhaps it's the nation that you live in or the nation that you are from? 
When you imagine the best parade that you could ever attend, real or imaginary, who is in the seat of honor? Do you ever imagine yourself being the one who is honored the most? Palm Sunday is the day where we join the crowds who made Jesus the center of their parade. So what does that look like? And what do the people look like who put Jesus at the center of their parade and at the center of their daily lives? You know, Jesus was born in a humble barn to parents of humble stature, raised in humble Galilee, with a humble career ahead of him of being a carpenter. When he began his ministry, he found humble friends to join him. You might even describe some of them as lowly. And they moved around the countryside exclusively reliant upon the humble hospitality of strangers who most often came from humble circumstances themselves. Early on, he was met by temptation in the wilderness, where the tempter sought three times to test Jesus' humility, saying to him, prove that you are powerful by making food out of rocks. Prove that you are powerful by displaying your divine nature for everyone to see. Prove that you are powerful by taking all of the world under your control. But Jesus' humility would not be tested. And he went on to serve in a ministry that lasted for a total of three years on earth, a relatively humble period of time, before he died on the cross, which was at the time the most humiliating way for someone to die. From birth to death, Jesus was characterized by humility. When he was old enough to choose otherwise, to choose something other than where he was born and who he was raised by, he then chose to honor humility, even when he was offered the opportunity to exhibit all pride and power. He talked about humility all of the time. He talked about it with Nicodemus. He told stories about it, be it through the vineyard workers or through two brothers in their father's home. He chastised people around him who acted pridefully. Didn't matter if it was his enemies, the Pharisees, or if it was his best friend, Peter. But more than he talked about it, he lived it. Humility is central to the person and character of Jesus, first deemed by his birth, but then repeatedly chosen by him in his adulthood through the most difficult of circumstances. So as followers of Jesus, we need to ask ourselves, are we as committed to choosing humility as Jesus has been? I ask you this question while I stand in one of the most beautiful churches in our beautiful city, in one of the wealthiest cities in the nation, which then makes it one of the wealthiest cities in the world. But you know, none of that affects the answer. The answer is the same wherever we are. C.S. Lewis, who's going to be a bit of a guide for us today, 
said, there is one vice of which no human in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when they see it in someone else and of which hardly any people ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad tempered or that they cannot keep their head about sex or drink or even admit that they are cowards. But I do not think I have ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse themselves of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who shows the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a human more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. The more we have it, the more we dislike it in other people. This essential vice, this utmost evil, is pride. Lewis believed that there were two things at the very core of pride, that pride could not thrive with one of these things missing. Competition and power. He said pride is essentially competitive. It is competitive by its very nature, while other vices are competitive only by accident. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition has gone, then pride has gone. Greed might drive people into competition when there's not enough to go around, but the proud man, even when he has more than he can possibly want, will still try to get some more just to assert his power. Nearly all those evils in the world, which people put down to greed or selfishness, are really far more the result of pride. What Lewis says here reminds me of an old saying about the most effective line a salesman can deliver when trying to close a sale. That line is, Buddy, let me show you something several of your neighbors said you can't afford. Nothing will arouse our pride more than sitting on the losing end of a competition, than being told that we will not be the best. Pride will urge us to act in ways that are irrational, illogical, unethical, and sometimes just plain mean. We have examples of human pride on display every single night. When we turn on the news, every time that we open a newspaper or open Twitter and find out what's happening in the world, college admission scandals, wars and rumors of wars, corruption, manipulation, lying. As Lewis says again, he says, pride is the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Other vices might sometimes bring people together. You might find good fellowship and jokes and friendliness among drunken people or unchaste people. But pride always means enmity. Pride, he says, is enmity. And not only enmity between humanity, but enmity with God. Enmity toward God happens. Because power is the thing that pride competes for. 
Lewis notes that nothing makes a person feel more powerful than moving people around like toy soldiers. What a true image. And while we might be able to wrestle one another and win a little bit of power from each other from time to time, we cannot stand even one round in wrestling God for true power. Lewis says, in God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God is that, is being superior to yourself, and therefore know yourself as nothing by comparison, then you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, he says, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. The story of Palm Sunday is a story about the lengths people will go to look down on others. It's a story that demonstrates the way that we as people long to embrace pride and the way that Jesus actively rejects it, actively subverts it. On the one hand, we have people gathered for the parade, which is nothing. A parade is nothing if it's not collective celebration of pride. And then they line the road with their cheers and their enthusiastic waving. They're ready to watch their victorious leader ride through the streets on his valiant horse with his sword on display, magnificent having, in having emerged from a battle that they have won so that he can now lead them into victory and into power. And in the same way, that we celebrate the 4th of July every year with the parade in the same way that our Super Bowl team that wins fills the main walkways and waterways this past year. They bring that same energy into that. They are looking to the one in the center to lead them, to spur them on in their pride, to raise their awareness of competition, to gain more power amongst whatever it is if only for a moment so that they too can feel powerful and superior. But the thing is, that's not who Jesus is. And it's not who Jesus is going to lead them to be either on that first Palm Sunday parade. In our scripture here by Mark, there is no blood on Jesus' sword as he goes down the middle of the aisle. Jesus doesn't even have a sword. Jesus rides not on a valiant steed, but on a borrowed mule. When the time comes for Jesus to do something dramatic as he reaches his destination, the end of the parade, when he is supposed to go into the temple and offer sacrificial thanks to God for all that God has done for him and for all that God still will do, Scripture says that Jesus arrives and he looks around at everything. And then he notices the time and decides to go ahead and leave and spend time with his friends. No matter how much pride the people demonstrated, no matter how much they cheered him into this position of being their champion, to be their warrior, Jesus would not engage their pride. Not when they threw him a parade and not when they nailed him on a cross.
So friends, how do we begin to let go of our pride? When it is so endemic to who we are in our world today and in our culture. One author said that pride is the dandelion of the soul. Its root goes deep. Only a little left behind will sprout again. Its seeds lodge in the tiniest encouraging cracks. And it flourishes in good soil. The danger of pride is that it feeds on goodness. Benjamin Franklin said that perhaps there is perhaps no one of our natural passions so hard to subdue as pride. Beat it down, stifle it, mortify it such as one pleases. It is still alive. Even if I could conceive that I had completely overcome it, I should probably be proud of my humility. We know, friends, that pride is sneaky and stubborn and persistent. It's good to hear it from authors and people of fame, but we know it already. We don't need to be told. So how do we let go of our pride? And how do we let God grow our humility? Our guide for today, C.S. Lewis, only offers us this. He says, if anyone would like to acquire humility... I can tell you the first step. The first step is to realize that you are proud. It's a biggish step too. at least nothing whatever can be done before we realize that. Friends, on this Palm Sunday, in this parade that we stand in that is celebrated every single year for thousands of years, Let's not get so distracted by palm fronds and by cheering that we miss clearly seeing the one who we are actually celebrating. Let's not get so distracted by the way that things usually go that we don't understand who it is who is leading us. It might be that our pride brought us to this parade for one reason or another our lust to have more, to be better, to seize power in ourselves. Something else might have brought us here, but it will be Jesus who leads us out. Amen.